Welcome to Dev Tools Topia, where we have casual and unpretentious conversations about developer tools and the future of the software industry. I'm your host, Kate Catlin. Hello, today we're talking to Diana File, who is a data science manager at Honey, which is one of my favorite web plugins for um, the recent times when I am doing way too much online shopping and it helps to save me money. So thank you so much, Diana, for being here. Thanks, Kate. Happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Diana, do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of like your experience in the data science world? Sure. When I started out around 15-ish years ago, data science was a thing. So I was a software engineer working at Amazon on machine learning type things. Um, then I went to MIT and did a PhD and did some optimization and machine learning in the air traffic uh, airline space. Um, PhD at MIT, casual. No big deal. And I did kind of like researchy stuff back in industry at a company when I moved to Boulder, Colorado. Um, then I was a CTO at a machine learning startup in the air travel space again. And now I'm at Honey helping shoppers save money um, <laughs> and you. doing various other things. Fantastic. Um, so Diana, you've been in the machine learning world for, for quite a while. How, how have you seen it change in like the last 10 years up until now? What have been some of the trends during that period of time? Okay, so the biggest trend, I think, when it comes to dev tools is around um, the packages and libraries available. So picture, I'm going to take you back like 15 years when I first started. There was nothing. Like the way that you did data science work was you pretty much hand-coded all your own machine learning libraries. You did like sort all in Unix because that was kind of the fastest. There was no like distributed compute that was managed for you. MapReduce was just coming out. So really like you were thinking about things like how do I code up my machine learning algorithm? And now fast forward 15 years, a lot has changed. First of all, at that point, Python didn't have very much in the way of support for data science work besides just the raw programming language. This is why you would program all your own stuff. R was pretty good at that point. But now um, Python has a complete amazing machine learning ecosystem, like great libraries like Pandas and Scikit-Learn that have like tons of machine learning algorithms already implemented for you. There's just like a lot out of the box that you can do, which is pretty amazing. Um, So yeah, I think the libraries have been huge. And then on top of Python, which has now like, I think the best um, machine learning ecosystem, there's some amazing libraries for deep learning like TensorFlow and PyTorch. And on top of that, more recently, there's even pre-trained networks. So you don't even have to train your own machine learning algorithms in some cases. So yeah, it's like, it's completely worlds apart. The things you spend time on when trying to implement machine learning back in the day when you were reading papers and implementing your own stuff. And now where you can think more higher level around what data do I have? What is the business impact that I want? And focus on those kinds of things. So you're, you're sort of like skipping all the boring parts or the, the parts that aren't true machine learning and skipping straight to like, and now I can do big picture thinking about what I'm testing and how. Yeah, I think so. And things are more plug and play, like you can kind of combine algorithms or maybe change a thing or two. 
but you don't have to write your matrix multiplication and make sure it's fast <laughs> enough from scratch. Wow, that is so cool. So you mentioned a bunch of different tools that are on the market right now. Who are, who are kind of the big players uh, in terms of tooling? And then of those, what's your favorite? Or maybe it's not a big pl- player, but like what's your favorite overall? Um, so there's a lot of big players, like companies that do certain things within the machine learning workflow. I tend to ignore all of those because it changes so rapidly um, I think that's if the second big change. That what do you mean by it, it changes so rapidly? Like there's always new tools coming out or like it's know, always like different. Things just go out of fashion so quickly. Like four years ago, everyone was so wowed by TensorFlow. And then t- if you adapt to TensorFlow at that point, now you'd be like, shit, I should be using PyTorch or even things like Hadoop. There was a while, maybe 10 years ago when everyone was Um, adopting Hadoop for distributed compute. And now Mm. the cloud providers have completely provided that niche. No one's using that anymore. So it's really hard to buy into things that you have to pay for from companies. It's much easier to just go open source and kind of build your own on top. That at least that's my experience because the ecosystem just moves so quickly. Wow. I tend to just use a cloud provider like um, at my last role, it was AWS. Now it's Google Cloud at Honey and try to leverage as much as possible the tooling they've created for you within that ecosystem and build your machine learning on top of that and not um, really buy from huge vendors and just leverage Python and all the open source libraries that are so amazing. Wow. That's interesting. also my so then, opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like controversial opinions. So, so then, so then, how? Okay, this is like a dumb, totally ignorant question. Um, so then, how do these big cloud providers make money by how much you run on them? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like an upfront fee. It's like the more you yeah. use them, the more you pay. Kind of. Yeah. Thing. Oh. By the way, leads to the third thing that I would add as the biggest shift in the last 10 to 15 years, which is open data. It's not really a developer tool, but 15 years ago, not only did you have no machine learning algorithms pretty much, unless you were using R at your fingertips, but you also didn't have any data to use unless you happen to work for a company with tons of data already, which I happen to do. But if you were just in academia or at a startup trying to build a new product, you couldn't. There was just no open data. And since then, government, every government, every city, every state, like organizations publish so much data. So the things you can do just on your own, sitting in your room by yourself with open data and like super cheap cloud that you only pay for as you use is unbelievable. Whoa. Um, but also like maybe a little creepy, right? Like what, what types of data are totally open that someone could pull in? Like, is it like people's browser history? Is it like, I don't know, just where they go based on like how Google maps tracks them? Like what, what's publicly available versus not? Um, I hope that it continues to be that there's no personal data available anywhere. But the things I would give you are things that like the public might have the right to know, like who is making campaign contributions Um, is how, what is like the farming like in the state of Colorado (laughs) or more recently, I just read the other day, um, 
there's an organization combing through police records trying to find police officers that might have be corrupt and have a problematic record when it comes to maybe not um, black people, but just a problematic record with the number of violent incidents they've been involved with, things like that. Mm. So Oof. I think like this kind of open data is amazing. Like one, so one, one that I love to point to, this happened a while ago, there's a blog called Quantified New York, where this guy just uses open data and looks at it and does that stuff with it. And he got all the parking tickets in the state of in New York City and found there's this one parking spot that created like $50,000 of parking violations a year. And he went there and took a picture and it turned out the signage was really confusing and people were totally getting screwed by this parking spot. <laughs> and he and the, and the city of New York just changed and made the sign more clear. And then people saved $50,000 a year because of this guy's pre-usal of open data. Wow. Okay. So, so far it's open data for good. Like you're not concerned about what data is open versus not, at least from the government aspect. So what I am concerned about is machine learning, how machine learning algorithms might, algorithms might use that data. You can probably take open data and do things that are a little bit shady with it, even though it's not violating privacy. So where this happens, like happens, it comes into play with bias in machine learning algorithms. Mm. So like one example of that, and I don't think this is based on open data, but anyone that does, like any company that has to try to do targeting advertising for jobs, I feel like that could be really dangerous because you might, let's say that you're browsing Stack Overflow and you see a job. You don't know if you're advertising only to a certain group of people because of the way your machine learning algorithm has picked up patterns in human biases. Uh, and like you could be advertising and it turns out you're only advertising to a certain group of people and completely leaving out another group. Like maybe you're pretty much never showing ad to people that happen to be women, just the way you've set up the data. So I think that's the places that problematic things can creep in. Ooh, yeah. And I imagine that that's only going to become more of an issue as we go into the future. Like, I mm -hmm. think machine learning has been sort of a theme of this podcast. Like, everyone I've talked to so far has talked about machine learning and how it's going to affect the future of the thing they're working on. Um, so it's, it's only getting integrated more and more. Yeah. Because you can just think of machine learning as a way to automate things. It's almost like there's all kinds of ways you could automate things in any, in all kinds of ways. And machine learning just um, takes data and kind of finds patterns and makes an output out of it at a high level, but it's just a form of automation or speeding things up. And so that's happening everywhere. Definitely one of the tools for that is machine learning. Mm, so then if it's, if it's a pattern in society that we don't necessarily like, like machine learning doesn't know that, it's just going to say, oh, this is a pattern. I guess they want to keep it going. Yeah. Whereas there's many aspects of society we actually want to change. Mm -hmm, yeah. And the promise of like in an ideal world, like if you can set up a machine learning algorithm and you have visibility into biases, maybe it's 
I actually like more beneficial to society because you remove like, okay, the idea, um, let's take the example of you're applying for a mortgage. So it used to be that some dude at a bank smoking a cigar would look at you (laughs) as you came in during the interview and decide whether that person, probably a dude felt you were credit worthy and that person (laughs) made a decision about your mortgage, like that person. And so the, (laughs) hopefully the, the, the promise, if you apply machine learning, like that's kind of the idea of credit scores. You try to as much as possible be unbiased if you can, instead of one person in a room, it's you can actually understand what's happening and maybe you could check afterwards. Like, are, do we have higher approval rates for certain groups of people or certain rate or lower approval rates for certain races? And you can check algorithms after the fact. And that's one thing that's really changing. And back to developer tools, they're, they're becoming to be great libraries for that too. Like one that I work, use at my work is called SHAP. And I do some work with lending. And so we do these fair lending analyses where we train a machine learning algorithm and then we ask, okay, are the approval rates for men different than approval rates for women? And we uh. can actually, instead of me sitting in a room and just approving people for loans completely biased because I'm a human and humans are biased. We can, maybe the machine learning algorithm has a danger of being biased, but increasingly there's developer tools to check for that bias afterwards. And oh, it'll, God, so no, almost no one does this, but I think it'll become more commonplace. It's getting a lot more attention and it'll be really cool once we're able to do more checks that our machine learning algorithms are working in a fair way. Yeah. What, what was that cool tool called? Shaper? It's called SHAP, S-H-A-P. It's a, it's an open source library that... Open source. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, so speaking of things that are going to become more commonplace, where, where is machine learning going to go like in the next year? Like if we touched base in June of 2021, what do you think will have changed in terms of specifically machine learning tooling? Oh, I didn't mention this before, but one of the best tools that has occurred, that has been developed is called Jupyter. Are you familiar with that? No. It's a way of, it's called a Jupyter notebook. And it's a way of when you write code as a programmer, usually you write like just code in a file Um, but Jupyter notebooks are more interactive. It's almost like a research notebook where you ask a question, huh, let me load in this data. What what is the mean like? And then you compute a mean, you might do a chart, and then it's interactive. So it actually shows you the chart, shows you the results. And let's say the data changes, you could rerun the whole notebook. So it's a way of communicating machine learning which has been a huge game changer. But Jupyter is really crappy in a lot of ways. There's no debugger. It's just really clunky. So I think I'm hoping Jupyter, even though I use it every day, it's a love-hate. It's necessary, Uh but there's a lot of negatives. I think those kinds of tools that still have tons of friction where machine learning developer tools, they've evolved, but they have so much room for growth. I think that's going to get, you know, marginally better in the next year. Like those kind, there's going to be small changes to all the friction and developer tools, like for Jupiter. 
Oh, I like that. Yeah. That, well, I mean, it's a good MVP approach of them, right? Like get the functionality out there and then fix user experience. Yeah. Or at least hopefully that's what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, everyone uses Jupiter. It's completely probably, com- I don't know. I don't know statistics, but I would guess hundred percent adopted That's a <laughs> within data, between data scientists. That can't be true, but, um, but it's so, yeah, there's so many points of friction. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Well, good to know. So then looking out a little bit further, how is machine learning tooling going to change in the next 10 years? Like 2030 in June, we check in, um, we're both, you know, millionaires who, who rock climb all day, every day by then, but you know, we, we keep an eye on the machine learning industry. Um, what, how will, uh, tooling have changed since then? I think that there's just baby work towards this area of explainability and fairness in AI and machine learning. And I think that'll just be leaps and bounds better. I think it'll be completely standard when you're deploying a machine learning algorithm to production and it has any impact on people's lives at all, (laughs) then you're going to have to show that this thing is fair and is doing, is not affecting certain groups of people adversely. So that's going to be a huge shift. Then... Yeah, we're focused. You're here to that. I mean, if, if that isn't the case, then it's a future we should fight for. Yeah. Um, then this is not really developer tools, so I'll just mention it briefly, but there's like two big trends happening. One is federated learning, which is where you can have more privacy for machine learning. It's kind of like you can think of, let's say that you want your movie recommendations for Netflix, but you never want to tell Netflix your actual data. You never want to tell Netflix what movies you actually like because you want to keep that private. So it's ways that um, the data never leaves, say, your device. Like your um, favorite movies are never going to leave your mobile phone. Netflix will be able to put the algorithm on your phone and just process it locally. They never have to use your data. So it'll just be a nice way where it'll be much more common where you'll have guarantees that, yeah, you'll, you'll use this app, but you know that you won't be giving them any of your data. Whoa, that is very cool. That's pretty cool. And then the third one is deep learning has been the like the biggest new development in machine learning technology over the last 10 years. And it allows you to um, actually do intelligent things for natural language processing and vision. I forgot to mention 15 years ago, no one was looking at images and doing anything with them. You couldn't even store them on disk like you didn't you couldn't deal with them they were too big and also there were no machine learning algorithms that did anything useful with them but that has completely (sighs) changed yeah so I think there's just going to be more leaps and bounds with what you can do with deep learning that I'm really excited to watch yeah that will be fascinating and also a whole different set of privacy concerns right yeah if it's gonna and this is already starting like deep fakes are going to be more of a thing where it's just going to be much easier to impersonate someone. That is scary. Yeah. And that has a lot of social implications. So I think that we're going to be grappling with that as a society, not a developer tool, so we can move on, but it's hard not to mention. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, that is scary. Um, okay, so speeding forward to 100 years from now, um, <laughs> hard to imagine that world. Maybe there won't even be machine learning. Robots will just be like running the show by then. But um, what, what does developer tooling look like for machine learning in 100 years, uh, if applicable? <laughs> I think I'm not one of those people that has foresight that far ahead. Um, but I'm going to say it's going to be so seamless. Machine learning is going to be so amazing. <laughs> you won't even have to do anything. You'll just think a solution and it'll just materialize. Mm-hmm. Like the tooling can just read your mind. Yeah, the tooling can just read your brain cells and then like create a solution. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a wild world. Um, and, and that's sort of an interesting note to end us on, you know, we've all seen Westworld at this point, um, and all the other dystopian future movies about robots running around the world as an actual machine learning expert. Um, or should I be scared of that? Like are robots going to take over the world? I'm going to say a big fat no to that one. (laughs) Machine learning is super task oriented. Like you have to tell these algorithms exactly what to do. And it's a little bit amazing when a machine learning algorithm can detect a cat, but there's like 50,000 servers running forever in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And you have to tell, yeah, it's so task oriented. There's no creativity, no... There's been no evidence that a computer will do something that you don't tell it to do. That's a whole different thing. So I just don't conceive of this being a problem. That is very good to hear. Um, (laughs) Thanks to Andrew Ng, who's um, a professor. Now he's kind of an industry. He had the first data science MOOC like 10 years ago out of Stanford. Anyway, I think he says something like... um, Worrying about the robots taking over is a little bit of like learning about, or sorry, would please cut this out. But uh, being worrying about robots taking over is a little bit like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Oh, there's just like fifty thousand things that would have to happen. (laughs) Is pretty inconceivable right now. That is that is very comforting to hear. and, and a great way to refocus the conversation about machine learning on the, on the current issues that are at play that we should be focusing on very imminently. <laughs> yeah, like humans. Humans have enough problems and they're, we're just encoding all their things into machine learning. So that's the bigger threat here. <laughs> I like it. Um, well, thanks so much, Diana. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you and uh, I'll sleep easier at night henceforth. Thanks, Kate. Great to be here.